We've been in this sermon series called Way, Truth, and Life. And it's based on a book by my friend David, um, and, and by the same title. Um, and, and he's helping us to understand the way we encounter grace in our lives. As we journey through life, we encounter grace in different ways. And today we're going to be looking at God's saving grace. Um, and and, and as, we, as we walk through life, we understand grace comes to us in different seasons and we experience it differently. Uh, the book of Ephesians has been sort of a jumping off point for us. And we're going to be uh, back in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Pastor Chad read verses 8 and 9. But I want to back up and grab verses 4 and 5. We were there last week and we're going to stay there for this week. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, but, in referring to the way you used to live, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And Paul's referring to humanity apart from God. The Bible refers to death in three ways. It obviously talks about physical death, something we're all going to experience. It talks about eternal death, eternal separation from God after we die. But then primarily the Bible's focused on spiritual deadness or spiritual death. And this is humanity living apart from God's grace, humanity that has not responded yet to God's offer of salvation. And what Paul says here is we're dead. We're dead in our transgressions. We're dead in our sin. We're dead in this way of living. And last week I presented an image to you, and it might not be a great image, but uh, the image of a zombie. I mean, that is what Paul is saying when he says we're dead in our transgressions. We're up, we're moving around, maybe we're highly functional in some way, but if we've not made a response to God's grace, then we're dead inside. Um, and, and, and the writer of probably our, the most popular hymn, of the last 300 years, Amazing Grace. Uh, he probably had a better image than zombie. He said wretch. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. So whatever you want to call humanity apart from God's grace, it's bad. It, it's, it, it's, it's really bad. And, and Scripture paints a pretty bleak picture. As we resist God's offer of salvation, as we continue to live in our transgressions and in our sins, the, the picture is pretty clear, is that humanity will always love sin more than they love God. Like We're always going to pivot to what benefits us. We're always going to pivot to our selfishness. We're always going to love sin more than we love the things of God. This is humanity living apart from God's grace. And it's a pretty bad picture. Um, it reminds me of of a little friend that Paul had in preschool. This is back when we lived in Texas. I think this was Paul's first adventure into uh, preschool. And uh, he made friends with a little, little boy named Zach. And uh, Paul came home from, from preschool the first week or two and was telling us about how Zach got his name on the board and Zach got in trouble and Zach wouldn't listen. And I said, man, this Zach character, he sounds... He sounds like he needs to straighten up, Paul. Paul said, yeah, and he's my best friend. And I said, whoa, whoa, let's, let's find someone else to be friends with. But I dropped him off at preschool one day, and Zach was sitting at his desk, and he got, I watched him get up, he walked up to the board, 
and you know they had like little clips. That's how you got your name on the board. Like you would, you would, you would put the clip on your name, which means you had gotten in trouble. And so he walks up to the board. He grabs the clip. He puts it on his name, and he walks back to his seat. And the teacher says, "Zach, you don't, you don't have to clip up today. You haven't, you haven't done anything wrong." And Zach looked at her, and he said, "Well, I haven't yet, but I'm going to." And so he was convinced that. He was not going to play by the rules. He was going to do what Zach wanted to do. And that's a pretty good picture of humanity. Apart from God's grace, friends, before our feet hit the floor in the morning, before we're even out of bed, apart from God's grace, humanity is always going to be focused inward. We're always going to be acting out of our own self-interests. And this is the simplest definition of sin when we act solely out of our own selfish interest. And, and, and so, Scripture has a different calling for us than that. Scripture has a different vision for who humanity can be. At the core of, of why Jesus came, it was to take humanity that was hopelessly curved in upon itself and to curve humanity out towards God and towards others. Jesus' message was, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to be this selfish person. You don't have to live in in the deadness of your transgressions. You can be alive to God, and you can do so through grace. There's two people, I want to tell their story this morning, that encountered this grace. And they show us a picture of what it looks like when we turn from one way of living and embrace a new way of living. So their story is in Luke chapter 18 and 19. And I want to say this as as we go into the scripture, uh, it begins with verse 35 of chapter 18 and continues through chapter 19 and ends with verse 10. Um, And and the people that put our Bible together, um, they edited it in such a way and they put chapters and verses so that we could easily find stories. Now, I wasn't on that committee because that committee convened about 1,600 years ago. But, but they made a big mistake, because they put a chapter break in between these two stories. Now remember, the Bible is inerrant in all things concerning salvation. Chapter breaks and verse numbers are not necessary for our salvation. So this is where they blew it. And um, if I was on that committee, I would have fixed it. So this, this story needs to begin chapter 19, or it needs to end chapter 18. Um, So consequently, we haven't looked at these two figures side by side. But today we're going to fix that. And we're going to look at these two figures side by side because they present a full picture of what Jesus is doing in the lives of people who are living one way, and when they encounter Jesus, they can live a different way. We're introduced to a man who was born blind. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 35, we read that as Jesus was coming into Jericho, there was a man on the side of the road who had been blind from birth. And every day he sat on the side of the road and he begged for people to give him a little bit of money or some food so he could get through the, the day. And, and as he's sitting there um, on the side of the road, he began to hear uh, some commotion. And he wondered, is there a parade? Is there a Roman official coming into town? It must be someone very important to have this massive crowd of people following them. And so he inquired, who is it? What's going on? And somebody was, was kind enough to, to talk to him. Normally people would ignore him. But somebody was kind enough to say, 
it's Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet. And the blind man on the side of the road began to think about what he had heard about Jesus. And he cried out. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the, the crowd that was near the blind man, they said, hey, would you be quiet? Would you knock it off? Jesus doesn't have time for you. Jesus does, you're not going to get an audience with Jesus. Uh, w- would you just be quiet? And Luke records that interaction, and it is, is an intentional detail on his part to remind us of how people with disabilities were treated at that time and in that place. There were several things going on here that pushed people with disabilities to the margins of the society. And it's no accident that we find him on the side of the road. He's not participating in what is going on. He's there on the side. He's an outsider looking in. There's the practical matter of that society made no allowances for people with these kinds of disabilities. They, they, they didn't make adjustments to how they did things. And so this person who was blind had no feasible way to participate productively in society. And so they pushed him off to the side, tried to forget about him. But then there's a theological thing going on here. It was not uncommon for people at this time in this place to think that someone with a disability, like, like blindness or being unable to walk, somebody with that kind of disability has obviously done something bad. It, it, was, it was sort of an understanding that their parents sinned, their parents did something wrong, and, and so therefore God is, is punishing them. And, and so not only were they not practically able to participate in, in the society, but there was this theological scarlet letter that was put on them, scarlet D on them for disability. This means God is upset with you. God is, you got, you, God's, God's angry with you. You've done something wrong. Now, Jesus corrects this, by the way, John chapter 9. Jesus totally corrects this and, and says, hey, Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned that he, he was born blind. But this happened so that God's power might be displayed in his life. So, so Jesus corrects that theological understanding, but, but that's what's going on there. And so they say to him, be quiet. Stay in your place. Would you just stay on the side of the road? Don't interrupt what we're trying to do. Jesus is coming into town. He's going to teach we're going to receive from him. There's going to be important people there. We've got a meeting, and you're not invited to it. But he persisted. He cried out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man knew that this was his chance. What he had heard of Jesus confirmed in his heart that if his life was ever going to change, if he was ever going to be in some position not on the side of the road begging for other people's charity, that he needed to cry out to Jesus. Jesus was the only one that could help him. And what Luke tells us is that Jesus stopped. He stopped the crowd, he made his way to the crowd, and he had an encounter with this person who was born blind. And I want to pause here and make sure we understand this kind of thing on the part of Jesus happens all the time. Jesus always makes time for people the world has forgotten about. Jesus always makes time for people the world wants to forget about. And so as you ride around town today, you're going to see people on the side of the road. It's going to be obvious that they're going through something challenging. It's going to be obvious that maybe they're experiencing homelessness. 
It's going to be obvious that, that they don't have the resources to get in a car and to go wherever you're going. And as we pass those people, I want us just to be reminded of this one fact, that those are the kind of people that Jesus always took time for. And I think about people going through all kinds of, of challenging situ- situations. I think about the, the lack of affordable housing in our community. I think about the, the conversations we have about where should we put affordable housing. And so many times you, you hear you know, things like, well, not in my backyard. We don't want to put it there. And I just want us to pause and just be reminded that every time we have those kinds of conversations about social services or needs in our community, those are the folks in the Gospels, Jesus always took time for. So whatever the solution is, it has to, we have to be mindful that these are the people that Jesus took time to listen to. And these are the people that always got an audience with Jesus. And so Jesus pushes his way through the crowd, and he finds the blind man by the side of the road, and he says this, Verse 41, Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him a very direct question. What do you want me to do for you? And out of this man's need, out of his his poverty, he just made one request. Lord, I want to see. Can you imagine Jesus asking that question to to anyone in the crowd? Can you imagine Jesus asking that to to well-resourced people that were near him? They might come to him with a list. They might evaluate what they have, what they don't have. What is it that Jesus can supply in my life? Let me be strategic about this. But this man didn't hesitate at all. He had one need, and he recognized the one need he had. He was at rock bottom, and there was one thing that he knew would change his life, and he knew Jesus had the power to do that. Lord, a confession of faith, Lord, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. And the Bible tells us that Jesus looks at him and says, your faith has healed you. The man got up. He was able to see. And Luke tells us that immediately he followed Jesus. There's a a designation of discipleship. This blind man who was on the margins of society now has been healed. He's included in what Jesus is doing. And he responds in faith by following Jesus, praising God. And Luke also tells us that people praise God with him. Now suddenly the people that were like, no, he doesn't have time for you. Now they're like, yeah, man, I, I was an early adopter. I, I knew that this was, this was going to go well. They're praising God with him. So he now is following Jesus. And he goes further into the city of Jericho. And as Jesus is going into Jericho, there's also someone there who's in a very different situation, yet similar situation. You see, our friend on the side of the road suffered with blindness, but our friend Zacchaeus suffered with short-sightedness. The Bible tells us that Zacchaeus was a tax collector in the city of Jericho, and he heard Jesus was coming into town, and he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to have an encounter with Jesus, but he was short of stature. He was vertically challenged, and the crowd was pressing in on Jesus, and so he being a resourceful person, took matters into his own hands, and he climbed up a sycamore tree so that he could look down and see Jesus. And as Jesus is going into town, he sees this wealthy tax collector 
up in a tree, something you don't see every day. And he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, calls him by name, I need to go to your house today. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. And, and Zacchaeus has an option there to certainly to decline Jesus making this invitation of himself or to receive the invitation. And, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. He, he welcomes Jesus into his home. And we're dealing with one kind of marginalization when we talk about the former blind man. But Zacchaeus was experiencing a different kind of marginalization. I think maybe, maybe you know enough about uh, tax collectors in the first century to know what I'm about to say, but they were not everybody's favorite person. And I think agents of the IRS continue to not be everyone's favorite person. How many of you have a letter from them at home sitting on your desk right now? And they're asking for some documents from you. And they're wanting to make sure that you pay everything that you're supposed to pay. We just don't like taxes, do we? Um, and so the same is true in the first century. People didn't like paying their hard-earned money to Rome. But what they especially didn't like was being cheated out of their hard-earned money. And that's what tax collectors did. So part of the gig was you collect the appropriate amount of tax for Rome. And you send that on to Rome, but then whatever you want to take above that, there's a legion of soldiers stationed in that town, and they'll help you enforce whatever, whatever amount you want to pull out of the air. They will help you enforce that. And so tax collectors in the first century, they collected pretty much whatever they wanted, and anyone who didn't want to pay or couldn't pay was subject to uh, a Roman legion that, was, that would be a Roman group of soldiers that would be stationed nearby. So Zacchaeus was not everybody's friend. In fact, they hated him. They hated him. And Jesus says, I want to go to your house. Hey, you know that guy in town that everybody hates? You know that guy in town that, that, that just everybody wants to do away with? Yeah, I'm going to go to his house, and we're going to have supper together. And so Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his, his home. And what we, what we see happening here with Zacchaeus and this, this former blind man, we certainly see physical poverty. But with Zacchaeus, we see relational poverty. We see someone who has the most money of anybody in town, yet the least amount of friends. In fact, no friends. He's materially wealthy, but relationally he's poor. In fact, he has just surrounded himself. We don't, Luke says he's physically short, but I wonder if that's Luke's way of saying he has erected walls and mounds of wealth all around him. He can't even see around it. He has cheated people out of wealth, and he has built and amassed a fortune for himself, and he's done it dishonestly, to the point that he can't even see over the amount of wealth that he's cheated people out of and that he's amassed for himself. So Luke is doing a whole lot of things there with, with this detail about Zacchaeus's stature. But the thing Luke is wanting us to see is that he's materially wealthy, but relationally he's poor. And Jesus speaks hope into his life as well. As Jesus dines at his home, Zacchaeus has a transformation. Something changes in his heart. Jesus is able to offer him something that no one else could. 
a way of living that brings purpose to his life. And so Zacchaeus says, you know, Lord, I want to embrace this way of life. I want to follow you. I want to be connected to what you're doing. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take half of my wealth and I'm going to use it for the poor in Jericho. I'm going to take half of my wealth and I'm going to resource the poor. And then you know what else I'm going to do, Lord? I'm going to make restitution for the way I've cheated people. If anybody, if I've defrauded anyone out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times as much. I want to make it right with my neighbor. And I love that response of faith by Zacchaeus. It would be easy for us to say this was some kind of good work that Zacchaeus was doing. But what I would argue for, you, for us today is that the blind man in his material poverty makes a statement of faith, Lord, I want to see it. I believe you're the one that can help me do it. But, but Zacchaeus, out of his relational poverty, he shows us what a response of faith looks like for someone with, that, with those kinds of resources. It is, it, is, it is Jesus encountering him, and it is Zacchaeus saying, for me to be part of this Jesus community, for me to be part of this Jesus movement, for me to be connected to what God is doing in Christ, I'm going to have to respond in faith with, with these resources that I've been, been given. And so these, these, these responses look differently, but they are the same in that they both emerge out of two people wanting to respond in faith to what God is doing in Christ. And they represent people on a spectrum for us. I want you to think about these people on a spectrum. Material poor, material wealthy, both relationally poor. And we find ourselves somewhere in between. And it underscores that, that our response to grace, it looks different. It looks different. But, but the, the common denominator is always faith. We believe that this way of life that is offered in Christ is better. We believe that this way of life that is offered in Christ is the only way for salvation. We believe that this way of life offered in Christ is better than anything we could ever do on our own through our, through our, through our own striving. It is by grace, through faith, that we come to Jesus. And look at how God through Christ, changes both of these men. Saving grace encounters them, and it lifts them up from their misery. Maybe you resonate with the, the former blind man. Maybe you resonate with that, that marginalized life that he's living. Maybe you're in a low place today. Jesus is passing by. Jesus is passing by, and he's offering his saving grace, and it lifts us up from our misery. But the other thing that happens in, in both of these, these, these lives is it restores us to our community. It, it, it connects us to the, to the people of God. Whereas the trappings of religion alienated both of these people, the Jesus community, what God is doing in Christ, says, no, you can be a part. No, you're invited in. You're welcome because of saving grace. It's not because of anything you've done, but through saving grace, you're invited to be a part of this community as well. And then I love this other common denominator with both of these people. 
that, that after grace restores them, it commissions them. And the commissioning looks different because these people are in, in two different phases of life. They're in two different places of life. For the, the, man, the former blind man, the commissioning is, come, follow me, proclaim what has happened to you. And that's what he does. He follows Jesus and he tells his story and people begin to become attached to Jesus because this person's giving his testimony. So he goes and he follows Jesus. But this movement with Zacchaeus, as Jesus comes into his home and in response to grace, he decides to make restitution with his wealth. It's a different kind of commissioning. It is Jesus saying, let's do something with these resources that you have. Let's give half of it away. Let's make restitution for the people that you've cheated. Let's have one tax collector in the entire Roman tax collecting system that has decided to orient their life in a different way. Let's have one tax collector in Jericho that, 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 that does it the right way, that is truthful, that's honest, that uses their wealth and their resources as levers for the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus, you're now commissioned to be an agent of restorative justice here in Jericho. You've done some bad things in your life, but because of grace, you can make it right. And so they are commissioned to go out and to participate with what God is doing in Christ. And here's how the story ends. As Zacchaeus makes this commitment, they're still sort of basking in the miracle that's happened to the former blind man. Jesus delivers this very simple mission statement of what he was all about. He said, what you guys got to understand is that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We find the lost on the side of the road. We find the lost in wealthy homes with wealth they've amassed by dishonest gain. We find them wherever they are. And the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost and to give them a new life, and to give them an encounter with saving grace. John Newton was right. We are a wretch. But this grace, it saves us, and the testimony of wretch after wretch after wretch is I was lost, but because the Son of Man came to seek and to save, now I'm found. What does John Newton say? I was blind, but now I see. How many of you would say, I was short-sighted? I was surrounded by so many other things. I couldn't see over it. But God in his grace tore all of that down for me and helped me understand that he is the most important thing in my life. And now I see what God is wanting to do for me. I was lost. Now I'm found. I'm blind. But now I see. Both of these, both of these men, the former blind man, Zacchaeus, there came a moment in their life they had an encounter with Jesus and this one thing happened. They made a decision. They made a decision that this way of life was not for them. They made a decision. They took definitive action in response to grace. Uh, it wasn't too long ago I was... Um, <laughs> I was waiting on Paul to get some, done with something. And, and so I was at Fulbright Junior High and I and, uh, was waiting for him to come out and, and there were kids sitting out on a, uh, a, little, a little bench and, and uh, they were talking. It was, it was two young men, seventh or eighth grade, you know, they're in junior high. 
And uh, one of them looked at the other and said, hey, dude, I got a girlfriend. It's like, really? Yeah, we've been texting. So they start talking about that. And, and I kind of lean in because I sort of lean in because um, I've been out of the game for a while. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to know how this goes. Like, how does this go in, in junior high? Okay, when a, when a seventh grader looks at another seventh grader and says, hey, I got a girlfriend, like, what does that mean? And as best I could tell, it means you, you text a lot. Um, and, and beyond that, I really can't say that I understand much of it. Uh, but, but so I, I'm kind of leaning in, I'm hearing how this conversation goes, and the one guy looks at him and says, well, have you kissed her yet? <laughs> and he looks at her, he looks at him and says, dude, no, it's COVID. <laughs> um, so like, if you're the parent of somebody in that stage of life, maybe there's some, there, maybe there's a bright side to COVID, okay? I, I, maybe that makes navigating all this a little easier. I, I don't know. But uh, the pandemic, I, like, I, let me just, I don't understand junior high relationships. I don't, I'm probably not going to understand high school relationships. I, I, I won't understand college relationships. Uh, like I said, I, I, I've been out of the game for a while. Um, but I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was a relationship expert on. And she was talking about trends in dating in the midst of a pandemic. Now, how are people finding one another in, in the midst of, of this season where we have to be socially distant and we can't have parties and gatherings? And, and, and how are people connecting? I mean, because we're human. We're going to find a way to connect. And, and like everything in the pandemic, we've decided to turn to technology. And so dating apps are at an all-time high. People are using these dating apps like they, they never had before. And and the dating apps are, are creating connections in the midst of a pandemic, and people are Zooming and meeting for the first time, and I still think Zoom means an electronic meeting on a screen. It, it might mean something else. I, I don't know. But, um, but people are meeting, you know, virtually, sometimes for the first time. And this relationship expert began to talk about a phenomenon that, that, that she's seen, and it's, she says, very unhelpful. She said, people are not really experiencing healthy relationships because they're just kind of sliding into it. You know, they, they connect in a text. Conversation begins to happen, and then they meet up at some point, and they have dinner, and that kind of slides into another date, and they have dinner again, and that slides into, we should have the same address. That would be easier, wouldn't it? And then it slides into, let's co-sign for a car together. We should buy a car together. And it just slides into all kinds of things. And what she said is, is, is couples that become couples by sort of just sliding into it, it usually has really disastrous results. Like things usually just don't end really well when people just kind of, well, let's slide on to the next level. We'll slide into the next thing. And she said, my group has been doing a lot of research, and we got a massive grant, and we did all this research about what makes healthy relationships. And she said, what we've discovered is that couples that make clear decisions, couples that define relationships, 
Couples that begin their relationships by making clear commitments to one another have the most success. She said their physical intimacy is better than couples who just kind of slide in and out of all kinds of different situations. But couples that make clear, defined commitments to one another and they decide to be together have much more relational success. And I'm listening to this on the radio and I'm saying to myself, how much money did you spend to come to that conclusion when the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years have been, we've been saying this forever. We've been saying this forever. That like relationships are built on people that make commitments to one another and they stand before a community of people and they look each other in the eye and they say, I promise to love you, to cherish you, to honor you, to keep you in sickness and in health and forsaking all others till death do us part. That's what we do. You don't need to commission a big study to learn that people that decide and make commitments are going to be healthier than those that just slide on over to the next step. Are you with me? Or am I on an island there? Okay. And I, if, if the world is telling us that decisive, defined relationships produce the healthiest results, if, if, if external data is confirming what we've always known from God's Word, let me say this about our relationship with Jesus. I mean, how many of you have just been hanging around the church? You've just been hanging around, and Jesus passes by every now and then, and you just slide a little closer. And sort of by osmosis, you've picked up a few things here or there, and you slide a little closer. But, but what we need to see, that there comes a point where you can't, slide your way into a relationship with Jesus. Following Jesus is not a situationship. <laughs> like all the, all the situations just kind of lined up and I, I just kind of looked up one day, there's me and Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm a committed follower of Jesus. I don't know how it happened. I just woke up one day and I'm, just, I'm a committed follower of Jesus. No, friend. Following Jesus involves us making a decision. We don't slide into following Jesus. We, we decide. I mean, we decide. We make a commitment to Jesus, just like some of us have made a commitment to another person in sickness and in health till death do us part. We make a decision. It is the, blind, the former blind man on the side of the road saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. I was blind, but I want to see, and I want to be in a relationship with Jesus. It is Zacchaeus saying, I'm tired of being empty relationally. I'm tired of cheating people out of their wealth. I'm tired of living that kind of life. There's no hope. There's no future in it. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, and so I'm going to use what I have for the way of Jesus. I'm deciding to follow Jesus. I'm deciding to accept this free gift of grace. And so what about you?
What about you today? You're not going to wake up one day and find yourself as a committed follower of Jesus in a vibrant relationship with the Lord. It begins with us making a clear response to this offer of grace. Like God is here, and His grace is amazing. His grace is amazing. And we can come into a relationship with Jesus, not because of our works, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done for us. We can put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, and we can say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. Will you decide today? Will you decide to accept this offer of grace? and to follow Jesus. Can we pray? Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. And and today, if you know Jesus is passing by, if you know Jesus is passing by, if he's speaking to your heart, and you've been sliding a little closer, you've been hanging around, but today, you know today's the day. You know that today is the day where you need to definitively say, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I hope to be, Lord, it's yours. I want to be a committed follower of you. And I accept this offer of grace. If that's you today, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence that is in this place. And Lord, we thank you that you forgive us of our sins. You forgive us of the ways that we have asserted our own will contrary to your will. And Lord, I pray for the the man or woman here today, the student, those gathered here that saying, today's the day, Lord, you're passing by. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, I pray for those, those folks here that are making that affirmation of faith. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace, you have promised to come into their life, to change them from the inside out, to give them a hope, to give them a future. And we thank you for your amazing grace that is at work in us. Now, Lord, would you just continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we'll have the power and the strength to live the life you've called us to live. We thank you that you've commissioned us, that we can live a new life, Lord, may you be glorified in all we say and all we do. We thank you for the new lives that are beginning today because of your grace at work within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.